0: Hello, everybody. It's Dane. No, wait. That's not my voice. Hello, everybody. It's Dane Curly, and this is me clicking record. <music> MC Rec 15. Ooh la la. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my Patreon page. Patreon. www.patreon.com slash Dane Curly. I am excited to publish another illustrated story directly for my patrons and potential patrons like you. One of my very best short stories has just come back from its third time being held for consideration for months on end by a highly interested editor. That story, called How to Get Ahead in Life, seems somewhat uh, unpublishable due to its quote tone or quote theme. That's their words, and I kind of think that those words are code for... The story alludes to drug use. Ah, can't be published. Ah. Now, I won't cast aspersions at the magazines who ultimately rejected the story after genuine interest in many moons of contemplation, where I was patiently waiting for... Uh, their decision, but, you know, they all complimented the quality of the writing after all, and I'd love to get printed in any one of those magazines soon, but their loss is definitely our gain. How to Get Ahead in Life is a slipstream fiction story rooted in archetypal psychology. The story should be objectively interesting for any fiction or science fiction reader, but it'll especially impress those who have an affinity for Jungian, 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 archetypal psychology, visionary art, mythological studies, or Eastern philosophies. All that in 2,430 words. That's about 10 pages of a paperback book. That's how long the story is. And at any price, at any cost, if you're a patron at any level, you'll get to read the story. And uh, it'll be accompanied by an illustration graciously provided by self-described inkist, painter, tape-lupist, extra-dimensionalist, channeler of worlds, carrier of ghosts, and cartographer of dreams, Michael Miglietta. You can find him on Instagram at parlay underscore droner. I'll deliver the story in September, hopefully with the finished art. And uh, as you know, your Patreon donations go towards stimulating my writing efforts and funding this podcast, me clicking record. Uh, the creation of which itself is a boon to my writing because you know a lot of the research I do to to be a good presenter on this show is actually research for a story in disguise. But that's the end of the spot. Uh if you join, it'll mean a lot, it'll do a lot to support this podcast, and I will forever be your grateful client. On with the show. Today I want to talk a lot about Native American Indians. American Indian natives. I guess you got to say all three of those words to not offend everyone or to offend everyone. Who knows? But the point is that we're going to talk about natives of some kind. Maybe indigenous peoples could be a, a, a theme. And this is uh, actually a, a subject I know quite a bit about. I'm not just your, uh, you know, token colonizer here. Uh, no, I, um, I wrote a pretty important essay, I would say, called jus ad bellum throughout the Sioux Wars, examining major breaches of peace between the United States and the Sioux, 1854 to 1891. And I wrote that paper um, in completion of my bachelor's degree in political science in a seminar, which is for William Patterson University of New Jersey, the highest level course uh, for an undergraduate uh, called Just and Unjust Wars. My professor was Stephen R. Shalom, he, um, I have alluded to him in the past because he uh, was also my advisor. And happened. it just so happens that his advisor was the late, great Howard Zinn of much fame uh, as a historian and political scientist. So, uh, yeah, juice ad bellum. And, you know, juice, it's Latin. Some people say use to be more proper to the proper Latin Um, I will probably use them interchangeably because who gives a fuck. But you said Bellum throughout the Sioux Wars examining Major... You get the idea. So basically, I was assigned to um, select a war or a military action that would have been, you know, subject to scrutiny as to whether or not that war meets... Um, use ad bellum standard so what is or, or use ad bellum use in bellow and use post bellum so this is all about the justice the justness rather of going to war ad bellum of um actions within a war in bellow and uh you know maybe the justice uh the justness of the treaties that are you know at the conclusion of a war post Bellum, Or some combination of the three. But for my paper, I focused on use ad bellum. And oh my god, a spider that looks like a scorpion is dangling in my face from my ceiling. What do you want from my life? Leave me alone, foul beast. I'm blowing him, but he is spreading his legs into a war pose. I do not appreciate this. Go away. All right, I blew him hard enough. He landed on the wall. He has spread legs for landing. I don't know if he plans to attack me or not. I'm going to have to call in some backup. I don't want to kill you, sir. I would like you to eat the gnats that are flying around my apartment due to a cup, like a banana peel in the garbage, I suppose. Um, all right, I'm going to... Oh, he's turning. I don't appreciate that. I'm going to try to get back to the podcast. Anyway, I wrote a pretty damn good paper. It was published in a little... Uh, 17th annual edition of the Celebrating Student Writing Across the Curriculum Prize Winners uh, for 2016 to 2017, um, which makes me sound young, but I kind of went to college a little bit late. Uh, But in any case, I thought I'd share a little bit of it here, finally, because it is quite fascinating, and I do think it'll entertain you as part of my mission for infotainment, And it'll actually set the stage for a pretty good conversation as we go on. And that conversation really has a lot to do with um, the romanticization of the American Indian, the um, at times romanticization of the colonial period. That's looking at it from the other uh, angle. Right. So uh, it's as you know, everything is politicized these days. Literally everything is politicized these days. And this is not exempt from that phenomenon Um, the reality is that it shouldn't be a political issue we should be able to analyze things intellectually and put them under scrutiny and read the facts and understand them well Uh, but these days there seems to be a left-right divide along the lines of colonialists bad, natives good or colonialists came in and saved the natives from blatant savagery right? Um, Neither story is correct. Uh, And, well, let me read you an excerpt, and then um, we'll move on from the Sioux, who are native North Americans, and we'll um, talk a little bit about the Aztecs as well, because that is just something everybody loves to talk about, the Aztecs, because of the whole, you know, you human sacrifice thing. Human sacrifice thing, right? So... Uh, but let me give you a little bit of this. I promise it's uh, not too, um, you know, bleh. Here we go. It was written in 2016, so at the time the whole, you know, Dakota Pipeline thing was going on. So just bear that in mind for the context. Today, the U.S. broadcast media reports popular support for the Sioux Native Americans as they protest alongside other tribes and Americans against the proposed Dakota Access Pipeline. There seems to be a growing popular understanding that the United States had been unkind to Native Americans generally, and the Sioux in particular, as is reflected in internet memes, merchandise, and widely shared social media posts. Recently, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers announced it would stop development of an oil pipeline on certain historic Sioux lands. Beep, 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 beep caveat. Uh, that was under Obama after much protest, but then uh, Trump uh, kind of, you know, resent them back to work. So, unfortunately, that's the reality. Uh, so, um, you know, I had written that that was in something that could have been interpreted as a U.S. government concession to a popular protest. Of course, the regime change changed that. It is no longer taboo to suggest. That the u.s government did not make good on promised treaty conditions in fact it is the legal reality that they did not see the united states versus the sioux nation of indians united states reports which uh you know the court held that the black hills it's a geographical location were set aside as exclusive Sioux tribal property by the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868 and the taking of which implied an obligation for the U.S. government to make just compensation to the Sioux. Wars, however, are determined to be just neither by mandates from public opinion known to waver this way and that, nor by judging one party to be in violation of any given treaty. For observers of just war theory, these reasons alone cannot justify resorting to deadly force or the intentional killing of others in armed combat. Kind of a heavy topic. Kind of an important thing to get right, don't you think? That's not written in the paper. During a great migration away from easterly enemies, the Native Americans known as the Sioux settled west into three main divisions. The Dakota... Nakoda, and Lakota. Not too hard to remember. The Lakota Sioux tribe, itself made up of seven bands, was the chief opponent of the U.S. government during the Sioux Wars of 1854 to 1891, especially in three particular engagements, the Sioux War of 1866 to 68. They called that Red Clouds War, the Sioux War of 1876 to 77. They called that the Great Sioux War. And at the very famous Uh, or rather infamous, Wounded Knee and its surrounding events. That was in 1890, and they called that one the Ghost Dance War. I am doing a bit of paraphrasing here, so, um, you know, I'm trying to entertain more than I am lecture. So anyway, this paper that I had written aimed to review the justness of starting these three wars and also of the Grattan affair that preceded them all, kind of set things in motion. These four engagements are considered so significant by the United States Army that it commissioned a review of them for use in modern military education. So they are actually of contemporary and historical importance and deserve renewed examination, I so argued. And that, that is very true. Um, C.D. Collins wrote an Atlas of the Sioux Wars, and he wrote this for Fort Leavenworth's Combat Studies Institute Press. So it might seem uh, like ancient history, but I mean, it's literally not ancient history. So, you yeah, know. Uh, my paper was gonna focus on a particular aspect of just war theory, which is use ad bellum, the ethics of resorting to war. Uh, and there are criteria for that. So there's a just war theorist, a very prominent just war theorist named Brian Orend, and he lists seven criteria for use ad bellum, They are just cause, right? You got to have a good reason to go to war. Right intention, okay? So not only should you have uh, a good reason to go to war, but um, sometimes people take a good reason and they they exploit it, right? So right intention, Uh, public declaration by a proper authority. Now that's two criteria, making a public declaration. And also it can't just be some bum off the street, right? Uh, it can't just be some, you know, random tribesmen on the Sioux on the side, and it can't just be some private first class. So that's public declaration by a proper authority. Uh, proportionality, right? So if the reason for going to war perhaps was um, some, they wronged you, it has to be a proportionate response. War has to be a r- proportionate response. Probability of success. Nobody should be going to war if they're surely going to lose it. And finally, last resort. Um, if there were clear diplomatic uh channels if that were you know not exploited at all, if there were you know clear methods of rectifying the situation that didn't involve war so uh that those are the seven criteria for juice ad bellum additionally, I will consider juice in bellows non combatant immunity criterion uh, this is the the sort of the criterion of discrimination uh, discrimination in the sense of. Who are you killing, right? Um, so for me, as well as the theorist Brian orrand you know, we sort of share this belief that uh, jus in bello and jus ad bellum are not entirely distinct, right? So the the justness of going to war and the justness of conduct in war, there is some overlap there. So I, you know, I preserve the title of my paper despite including one of these within war considerations because I think that it also um, pertains to the ethics of resorting to war emphasis will be placed on different criteria depending on the circumstances surrounding each individual war discussed both the actions of the united states and the sioux will be analyzed with special attention to any failures to adhere to the jus ad bellum criteria and that is the end of the introduction so basically um I go through this paper, uh, trying to figure out what started the war and whether that was just. Uh, I look at U.S. conduct and Sioux conduct distinctly. I, um, I'm, I'm again, I'm checking out on a few different engagements. Um, it's, you know, one of them involves Sitting Bull. One of them involves Red Cloud. Uh, but what I want to share today is just one of those stories, um, because this is a very long paper, and I'm not gonna. not going to do that to you. So we're going to look at the Sioux War of 1866 to 68, and this was called Red Cloud's War. Red Cloud is a person who lived from 1821 to 1909. So he outlived the war. It's a good sign. And let me give you an introduction. Titles for wars are often controversial and differ between sides. What one battle's victor calls a triumph its loser may refer to as a massacre. It is often best to use a neutral term for such events. In the case of Red Cloud's War, however, research may prove the title appropriate and accurate given his role at the forefront of the outbreak of the Sioux War of 1866-68. Of course, titling it Red Clouds War does not necessarily imply that Red Clouds War was unjust per the criteria of use ad bellum. So here we go. Let's look at the Sioux conduct. Was there a proper authority? The Lakota Sioux were composed of seven bands. Brule, Sands Arc, Hunk Papa, Oglala, Minikanju, Blackfeet, and Two Kettles. Each band had more than one chief, but Red Cloud was an Oglala Sioux chief with greater authority, a, quote, great chief. Spotted Tail, a Brule Sioux chief, arrived at the treaty discussions at Fort Laramie before Red Cloud in January 1866 per invitations by messengers from U.S. Army Colonel Henry Maynadir to all Lakota chiefs. Okay, and I've got, I actually gathered that my citation here is D. Brown's super famous work, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, of which there is an HBO uh, original film adaptation. Uh, but I'm obviously citing the book. Red Cloud seemed to have an authority to, to declare war, evidenced by the fighting force which rallied around him. But perhaps not in the traditional sense of an all encompassing final authority that would have bound all Sioux to his decision. Once war began, Red Cloud would assume a role similar to the US government concept of commander in chief, where he would assume grand command over the other chiefs in war making decisions. Okay. Nevertheless, not all of the bands would go to war at the behest of Red Cloud, implying the Sioux Nation had a looser chain of command that allowed for dissent without reprisal. So this is really an interesting concept. There is obviously an organizational structure to the Sioux. They have seven bands. They are, um, you know, there is an organizational structure that they have chiefs. They have lesser chiefs and they have a great chief. And when Red Cloud decides to go to war, not all of the Sioux join him. Most do, but some sit it out. Um, there is not a final authority. It's not like the president of the United States, but it is someone of great power. Uh, so this is a government we're talking about. And although they didn't have um, you know, uh, these the sort of institutions that we look at uh, with our Western eyes, when we're looking for a legal system and written laws and all sorts of things like this, they nevertheless had a chain of command, they had a governmental structure, and that is something that goes against a lot of what um, people in that left-right debate tend to get after. A lot of people look at Native American Indians as, oh, they were just like living peacefully and um, They were just tribal peoples living in the forest or living in the plains and then big bad America came and and slaughtered them all Well, that's you know one way to tell a story Uh, the other is that these were a war-making people they had a government they had a structure for going to war declaring war um, battling their enemies and as I kind of alluded to in the very introduction they were already running from enemies. Those easterly enemies that I referred to, the, that was not a Western enemy. That was a, a rival tribe. And here's something interesting. How did the, these Native Americans wind up with a French name, the Sioux? And we said that they were also called the Lakota, but actually they refer to themselves as the Sioux. Now, this was a name that they acquired. So Sioux is a French word for snake and they acquired the name snakes, the snakes, from an enemy. One of their enemies told the French that these people are the Sioux, they're snakes. And the Sioux, in an act of bad assery, the Lakota, the Dakota, the Nakota, they were like, you know what, motherfuckers, we are the snakes. And we're going to bite your asses. And we're going to strangle you and constrict you. And you better get the fuck out of our territory. And they adopted the name. And I just find that to be one of the more badass aspects of them. And these are a a very um, tough, tough people. So, you know, I go on in this to uh, review the last resort and just cause. And what was the likelihood of success of a Native American taking, you know, maybe I should read it. Maybe it's really interesting. Is it really interesting? I mean, it kind of—I mean, it obviously is to me. I wrote it. Uh, Let's go a little bit further, then. Last Resort and Just Cause. It appeared the Brule Sioux were willing to undertake further negotiations with Colonel Mainadir when Red Cloud withdrew his Oglala Sioux from Fort Laramie. This may suggest a challenge to the USAD ad bellum criterion of Last Resort, but only if negotiations continue to have a chance at being fruitful. This may have been possible for the, quote, destitute bands of brulee who lost their horses and had not been able to hunt enough food over the winter months. Uh, What's my citation there? Also bury my heart at at Wounded Knee. Uh, They may have wished to accept gifts of food and horses in exchange for their signature providing land rights to build a road. Red Cloud and his healthy men, on the other hand, were not so coerced by hunger. Here's a quote from Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Red Cloud then wanted to know what the treaty would give his people. They had signed treaties before, and it always seemed that the Indians gave to the white men. This time, the white men must give something to the Indians. During the treaty proceedings, a regiment of 700 soldiers under U.S. Army Colonel Henry B. Carrington arrived at Fort Laramie, quote, under orders to establish a chain of forts along the Bozeman Road in preparation for the expected heavy travel to Montana during the summer end quote. This evidence suggests that the treaty Colonel Mainadier envisioned had necessarily included compensation for a road through Sioux lands that Red Cloud was unwilling to allow into existence. Quote, although plans for the expedition had been underway for weeks, none of the Indians invited to attend the treaty signing had been told anything about this military occupation of the Powder River country. Standing Elk, another Brulé chief, issued this warning to Colonel Carrington as, quote, a friend of the white man, end quote. There is a treaty being made in Laramie with the Sioux that are in the country where you are going. You will have to fight the Sioux warriors if you go there. They will not sell their hunting grounds to the white men for a road. They will not give you the road unless you whip them. End quote for Standing Elk of the Brule Sioux. In the middle of the treaty proceedings, Colonel Carrington admitted to the plans of building the road, and historian D. Brown shares the response of Red Cloud as recalled by Colonel Carrington himself in his autobiography. Quote, The white men have crowded the Indians back year by year, until we are forced to live in a small country north of the Plata, and now our last hunting ground, the home of the people, is to be taken from us. Our women and children will starve, but for my part, I prefer to die fighting rather than by starvation." Protecting a vital food source should be considered a form of self-defense, Like water and shelter, it is one of the chief means by which life is sustained. It is curious that those Sioux bands, already starving, are the ones which do not join Red Cloud in his promise of war. It would have been Red Cloud's experience, should he simply look around, to see the damage American encroachment on Sioux hunting grounds has caused the Sioux way of life. Men should not have. Men should not have to hope for survival when the means is right at hand. In this case, men would have had to hope that American gifts would flow in the form of food and protection, as their natural food source was depleted, run off, and the mobile bison that were not killed by passers by on the road to be built retreated to lands where Sioux did not have rights to pursue them. Public Declaration. It's possible that Red Cloud's last words to Colonel Carrington could have been more explicit. He could have told him to prepare for a full-scale war, but he only said he preferred to die fighting rather than starve. This promise from a highly regarded Sioux chief should have been taken very seriously by Colonel Carrington, who remembered it when writing his autobiography, I add. The customs and governmental structure of the Sioux Nation do not match those of the U.S. government. A language barrier also could have prevented more explicit language. Likelihood of success. Looking back from today with our biased knowledge of American military superiority and of the U.S. Army's technological advantages over the Native Americans, and I'll add right now, you know, we also seem to have won. We own all of America, right? But you know, it might have, it might be natural for us to assume that the Lakota were engaging in a hopeless war. After all, we today witness this once fearsome tribe in American clothing, standing on the wrong end of water cannons, protesting to prevent another kind of trail from being blazed. But Red Cloud was not simply mad with rage, and the results of the war support the claim he had the means to successfully wage it. Quote, when the ponies shed, that's may, <laughs> when the ponies shed, word came from the wasichus. Ooh, this is a good word. So wasichus is a term used to designate the white man, so to speak, but having no reference to the color of his skin. It's a Lakota word for, you know, Western encroacher. Uh, so it's, it's not, um, there, it's a capital W wasichus, and it's not a disparaging term. When the ponies shed, word came from the Wasichus that there would be peace, and that they would not use the road anymore, and that all the soldiers would go away. The soldiers did go away, and their towns weren't torn down. And in the moon... I fucked that up. The soldiers did go away, and their towns were torn down. And in the moon of falling leaves, that's November, they made a treaty with Red Cloud that said our country would be ours as long as grass should grow and water flow. You can see that it is not the grass and the water that have forgotten. I believe that is a quote from Black Elk. Yes. It's either Black Elk or Fire Thunder, but it is from the book Black Elk Speaks. There's so many things to read to understand this. It's like people just make up their opinions after reading a tweet. It's so fucking frustrating. Though the U.S. Army was better equipped in terms of supplies and cannons, they often traded the Sioux the very weapons that would be later turned against them. These arms proved all that were necessary given the guerrilla tactics of Red Cloud and his men. And, you know, the morality of waging guerrilla warfare is not going to be discussed right now because that's more of the umbrella of, you know, the ethics within a war. Uh, and of course, I am demanding my attention on the ethics of going to war. Uh, but guerrilla tactics is a way to win a war. Uh, it's a broad conversation to understand whether it's ethical or not. But nevertheless, Red Cloud employed guerrilla tactics very successfully. Quote The Sioux War of 1866-68 to 68 clearly established the dominance of the Oglala Sioux over U.S. forces in northern Wyoming and southern Montana, east of the Bighorn Mountains. Discrimination. Unlike the response to the Grattan Affair, Red Cloud's first attack did not target civilians but soldiers. Quote A band of Red Cloud's Oglalas stampeded 175 horses and mules from Carrington's herd. When the soldiers came riding in pursuit, the Indians strung them out in a 15 mile chase and inflicted the first casualties upon the blue coat invaders of the Powder River country. From that day all through the summer of 1866, Colonel Carrington was engaged in a relentless guerrilla war. Therefore, at the start of war, Yusimbello had not been violated, though later it would be. Because Red Cloud didn't give a fuck who he was attacking. If you were a Wasichu in his territory, you needed to get the fuck out. It was quite a bit racist in that sense that if you were not uh, a Native American Indian, if you were not a Sioux, You didn't belong on the land. There was no good reason. According to Red Cloud, you would be killed. You would be attacked. You would be driven off in a not so pleasant manner. How's that? Uh, For a good time. If you're thinking that, um, you know, if you're listening to the American government and you're like pursuing some gold or you're pursuing some prospects on the other side of their territory and America's like, yeah, yeah, no worries. We've got a road. We built a road. Come on through. Yeah, that wouldn't have been a good idea at the time. Conclusion. Red Cloud satisfies the use ad bellum criteria of just cause and right intention because he acted on behalf of self-defense of the Sioux way of life and genuinely sought to preserve their ability to acquire food for survival. Launching a minimally just preemptive strike... He satisfies last resort because given the evidence, the U.S. Army had already received and admitted to receiving their orders to establish a road in Powder River Country through Sioux lands, and it seems clear that treaty processions could only have resulted in permission being granted by the Sioux for the U.S. government construction project or failure. If retrospect implies that Native Americans did not have the industry to compete with the U.S. Army and its technologically superior forces— Red Cloud provides history with one of many examples where a guerrilla force was able to overwhelm a superior traditional army. And hey, that's a tactic that we employed as the United States in the Revolutionary War. He serves as a great chief with full authority over the Oglala Band of Sioux and over others via Sioux Conventions of Honor, where men joined the esteemed leader in respect of his decision, despite other bands staying out of the fight, as was their right. He gave a minimally just declaration of war put per his nation's customs in public in full ear of an enemy colonel from whom he peacefully departed before commencing his fight. Objections. Well, you might be objecting right now. Personally, I believe food, water, and shelter are as morally defensible as life because without them life is unsustainable. My interpretation of just cause is that self-defense can be food defense. Others may place stricter limits on just cause and assert that outright killings must necessarily occur before a response with deadly force. Unfortunately, noncombatant immunity will not be observed by Red Cloud throughout the war, who targets anyone along the developing Bozeman Road without discrimination, civilians and soldiers. Those who emphasize Jus Imbello criteria in their analysis, you might find cause to dismiss Red Cloud's war as unjust, but as these attacks on civilians were not the very first, which targeted soldiers, I have to determine that the start of the war was Just. And oh my lord, that's Red Clouds War. I, 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 there's nothing political here. That is an, as accurate a telling of history, as accurate an assessment of justness, of that particular engagement that I could give. It was an ugly time in history. It was a tough time. I'd love to talk more about colonization on a future episode take a swig of this mm-hmm. mm. actually enjoying a, a lager that was crafted to remove gluten it's called omission omission oh, brewing company a bright and crisp lager crafted to remove gluten ah you know you didn't get too many voices on this episode you got a whole lot of history And you got an advertisement for my Patreon. I think there's some things we can... Glean from this. With regards to... Like if we studied the whole thing. As I I already have. That's kind of the secret. But... um, You know... Not everything has to be political. We can just learn a little bit about history. We can... Look at a very particular slice of it. And... You know, let our imaginations move from there, add it to the compendium of our knowledge of what the world might have been like. There's no way that we could have a fully accurate picture of what was going on. And that, you know that's my segue to understanding the a- Spanish conquest of the Aztecs, you know, people who romanticize the colonial side like to say, That the Aztecs were a godless, disgusting, human-sacrificing, you know, unholy horde of sorts. But, of course, they, despite having human sacrifice, and nobody can agree, even scholars cannot seem to agree on how much human sacrifice was going on because i read this man matthew restall's book called when montezuma met cortez and in it in my opinion he was downplaying the um amount of sacrifice that was going on um and in fact, there was like a, I think it was a Scientific American article came out right after that was like saying like, we have just unearthed thousands and thousands of human skulls in um, in Aztec sacrificial pit. And we know that they were sacrificed because of X, Y, Z and that these weren't just, it wasn't just a normal burial ground. Um, so, you know, but the people who romanticize the natives like to position them as this lovey-dovey innocent you know should never have been attacked and oh it was just evil colonizers and like they don't look at it the way they would look at spain fighting france they look at it as evil fighting good and again that 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 evil good divide happens in both directions and in both ways it's wrong And that brings me to the song of the day to check out which is about the aztecs written by honestly perhaps my favorite artist neil young it's called cortez the killer so you can see which side of that divide he's coming from and please listen to this song it is i mean it it just has the (laughs) what's arguably the greatest guitar solo of all time um it's a really long guitar solo. There's a f- even longer guitar solo by um, a cover band who covered the song. And everyone who covers the song, it's awesome. Because the guitar work, as long as it's somebody, some band that's famous for their guitar, but Built to Spill covered it. It's one of my all-time favorite covers of any song. Just covers, period. But here's Cortez the Killer by Neil Young. And you'll, you'll get an idea of what I mean by going overly romantic with what the Aztecs might have been like. He came dancing across the water with his galleons and guns, looking for the new world in that palace in the sun. On the shore lay Montezuma with his coca leaves and pearls. In his halls he often wandered with the secrets of the worlds. And his subjects gathered round him, like the leaves around a tree, in their clothes of many colors, for the angry gods to see. And the women all were beautiful, and the men stood straight and strong. They offered life in sacrifice, so that others could go on. Hate was just a legend, and war was never known. The people worked together, and they lifted many stones. And they carried them to the flatlands, but they died along the way. And they built up with their bare hands what we still can't do today. And um, I'll end it there because then he adds this weird stanza that doesn't really fit. And I never understood why he did that. He adds a little bit of romance to the story there. Uh, But then he goes, he came dancing across the water. Cortez, Cortez, what a killer a lovely presentation of the Aztecs by Neil Young and when you listen to the song it does provide you with a certain mood of longing for what might have been and longing for what was lost in this beautiful culture and I mean the king the king of all these people he's just on the shore laying around with his coca leaves and pearls you know and he's just like what does he do with his life well he wanders his halls and he just thinks about all the secrets of the worlds that he has access to, and um, you know I, I interpret that as meaning like you know he um, he has he's more in touch with mythology and with um, you know some interesting archetypal psychology and things like that. And um, meanwhile, Cortez very elegantly dancing across the water, but coming with galleons and guns, um, and. You know, <laughs> that's the only compliment Cortez gets is that he dances across the water. That's a, a, it, is a, it is quite a superpower to dance across the water, um, you know, but that presents it in this effortless fashion. Meanwhile, there's this huge empire, Spain, a colonial empire who is, you know, having to finance the logistics of sending huge amounts of people and food and supplies across oceans. Um, but what else does Neil Young say? Uh, and again, I love this song. I love it. it but it's but it's wrong. It's, it's not accurate. So it's a great piece of poetry, uh, but not a great piece of history. Um his subjects gathered round him like the leaves around a tree and their clothes of many colors for the angry gods to see. And that's fascinating that, you know, here's Neil saying, okay, I, there were, you know, they did believe in these angry gods, but he doesn't mention how, they were sacrificing human beings to them, okay? The women all were beautiful. Holy romanticization. I mean really? Does any culture have one hundred percent beautiful women? I mean, come on, let's be real. Uh the men were all standing straight and strong, as if there was like no possibility for disease or illness or anything that could um cripple anyone. Um they were all every single man straight and strong, every woman beautiful. Um, and there we go they offered life and sacrifice, but it but why you know so that others could go on that's why they did uh it was a it was a noble thing to do uh, and then this is my favorite line <laughs> hate was just a legend well, and war was never known <laughs> so the aztec were actually a a a conquering force of Central America Central America was not a uh, a land of tribes, okay? We refer to the Aztecs as tribes because Americans are conditioned to think of Native American Indians as tribal peoples, but nope, not all Native Americans are tribal peoples, folks. Um, In Central America and in South America, Native American uh, or indigenous peoples, they were members of civilizations. Sure, not in the um, Amazon rainforest, but um, in the in along the andes they were and along the coasts of Peru and ecuador and um, and elsewhere Chile they were civilizations these were civilized people they did no war they had standing armies uh, their armies just weren't up to snuff and the, that's certainly true of the Aztecs. Now, the Aztecs had a great and powerful army. They were subduing their neighbors. They had vassals. Uh, vassals are people whom you know, you aren't their king, but their king serves you or else. Um, you know, you, their taxes go to your empire. So remember, it's the Aztec Empire, for crying out loud. They weren't a, a tribe of people where war was never known. Um I'm sure their people did work together. You can't have a great civilization without that. They certainly were a great civilization, but the way they managed their civilization was through conquest, much like the people who conquered them. uh And now you know, we don't want to say that that's cool. like that's great. Conquer people, go out and conquer people, and they're godless savages. No, that's wrong too. I just wish we could talk about history without cancelling each other. Jeez. Well, and then there's this line that they built up with their bare hands. What we still can't do today—that's how you get ancient aliens theory. Um, Cortez is just a killer. I mean, yeah, he was a killer, but I'm sure he saw himself as a good guy. I don't think he felt like a an evil man. He felt like he was spreading godliness uh, and, of course, uh, Spanishness and his own culture and his uh, the own power of his empire. And, you know, one thing that guides my thoughts about European powers is that they were constantly at war with one another. The way people look at it now is they, they group them all as either European or white, and they assume that these people are monolithic, but there there's been no shortage of France versus England, England versus France, France versus Germany, Italy versus Germany, Germany and Italy versus France, uh, Spanish civil war, Spain and Portugal have to learn how to get along, Spain versus France, you know what I mean? In the most, most, most West, Western Europe, um, security was a bit of an issue, security of remaining in control of your own land from within and from without, from other Europeans. And so these European powers, they saw colonialism as a way to strengthen their homes, obviously. And so uh, racism does tend to follow where, you know, the Spanish uh, are getting all the benefits, especially the Spanish in Spain, probably less so even the Spanish in the Spanish colonies. Um, But that is certainly a subject worthy of study. And Perhaps colonization was inevitable, but because of the fear of security, but, you know, maybe religion had a hand in making it a bit racial and making it a bit, um, a bit of a crusade. And really it was a ploy for resources. And, you know, there were situations where European powers allied with native tribes rather than conquered them. It happened quite a lot. Uh, in fact, here's something that might blow your mind. Cortes did not march against the Aztecs alone. He brought with him the armies of the Aztecs' neighbors who were sick of being uh, dominated by the Aztecs. Um, it's really fascinating, bit of history. You know, France uh, allied with some natives to kill other natives and um, France allied with natives to fight against uh, British Americans. So there you have it. Have a great, 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 great rest of your week. If your week is too close to be ending, have a great next week peace one two three this is a podcast dane noodles this is a podcast it's a podcast dane this is a noodles cast and we like sex